Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. My name is Michael Johnston, and I have Dr. Alicia Walker on the phone today to discuss Chasing Masculinity, Men, Validation, and Infidelity. Thank you again, Dr. Walker, for um, being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So um, to begin our show, could you tell me a little bit about how you um, became interested in the sociology of infidelity, in particular, particularly studying masculinity uh, as it deals with um, uh, outside partnerships? Um, that's a good question. Well, it, it kind of came about over the course of time. So um, one of my practices is every morning I read the news kind of before I do anything else. You know, I eat my breakfast and I read the news. And um, I noticed over a period of about six months, there were these um, – articles about infidelity that kind of shook what I thought I knew about it, you know, just from like a common sense kind of lens. Um, And so one suggested that um, most folks don't cheat um, to pick a new partner, that they are actually cheating um, to try to stay in their relationships. Um, Now, it wasn't an academic study. It was a website's like survey of their own members who were cheating. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting because, you know, we sort of been given the idea, right, that if somebody's cheating, they're kind of mate shopping. So I was like, hmm, interesting. And then uh, another one, which also came from a, web, a website, but a different one, suggested that most folks who cheat um, never get caught. So I was like, that's kind of interesting too. And um, then there was an academic study that said that women were the most vulnerable to cheat um, in their 40s. And I had just turned 41 when I read this. And my first thought was, I am so tired. I'm too tired to have an affair. (laughs) What what are are people getting out of this, right? Like what, so, you know, if they're not shopping for a new mate, right? And I mean, it can't be revenge because they're not revealing it to their partner. So like, what's, you know, what's going on here? So that kind of planted the seed, if you will. And originally I thought I would just um, look at women's infidelity. But um, I ended up getting a lot of men who wanted to do interviews as well. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, I don't know how that's going to work out. I don't know if men are really, you know, going to be honest with me because I'm a woman and, um, you know, but let's do the interviews. Let's, let's see what happens. You know, if it's a waste of time, then, hey, it's experience interviewing. So great. Um, and then it turned out that I had all of this like really super rich data about men and uh, that masculinity was really playing a huge part in what was going on. And that what these men reported to me was completely um, not at all what folks think men's cheating is about. And so that is really kind of how this all came into being. I didn't have like a grand theory or or anything like that. I just, I, I kind of fell backward into it is kind of really what happened. 
And how did you find yourself dealing with uh, with findings that uh, uh, were in opposition to uh, to the literature? Because as you said, it's it's not showing uh, at all what uh, much of literature says about particularly men for the for this book. Yeah. Uh, men cheating for for the purpose of sexual uh sexual pleasure sexual gratification mm-hmm. but uh but instead something something different than that um uh, well to be honest i was nervous um you know i kind of had that moment of like well who am i you know <laughs> to even you know challenge existing um data and i was nervous you know or how are people going to um, receive this? Um, and and it has been interesting, you know. Um, so the first book I wrote was about women's cheating, and that challenged a lot of common sense things. And now this book's coming out, and it also does the same thing. And um, the reception is very mixed. You know, some people are kind of excited by it, um, just you know, because it's like a new perspective, right? And then. Some folks, uh, you know, they're really kind of angry about it. Um, I've had some pushback. I've had some folks um, get really uncomfortable. And um, so that's, you know, that's a little, you know, know, I'm a junior scholar, right? Um, So it's not like I have this uh, lustrous, you know, career spanning decades (laughs) all back on. Um, So sometimes that can be a little challenging, you know, when folks are are really pushed by um, the data. But at the end of the day, the data says what the data says. You know, I can't make it say something different for anybody else's comfort. So. And as a qualitative study, it's it's used to explore new areas uh, yeah. that that may have been found that that uh, that previously weren't found. It's something to build off of, and and you approach this by by going to a, a site called Ashley Madison, yeah, uh, as opposed to some other dating site. And and why did you draw your sample from Ashley Madison? So when I came up with this idea for this study. <laughs> Um, I was really excited about it. I was actually, I actually went to graduate school to do something not this at all. <laughs> I actually went to study uh, masculinity and underachievement, which is what I did my master's work on. And uh, this idea came to me, I was like very early in my second year, and I was just so excited about it. Um, not that my other work wasn't exciting, but you know what I mean? This like really lit a fire under me and I was so excited. And, and then I was like, oh, you know, I, where am I going to get my sample of folks, right? Where am I going to recruit? It's not like I can go stand out with a sign, you know, honk if you cheat, right? That's yes. not going to work. And um, I can't imagine anybody tearing off, a, a, you know, a little thing from a flyer about cheating, right? Nobody wants to be seen in the hallway, right? Pulling off the contact information from a flyer or something. And so, um, and so I just kind of sat on the idea for a while because I thought, well, you know, I really like this idea, but I don't know where I would get my sample. And then I happened to remember that I had read a piece about Ashley Madison in like some woman's magazine, you know, one of those like journalists go undercover type of deals. And I thought, well, I could definitely find cheaters there. So I sent them um, an email totally expecting to maybe never hear from them ever. Because <laughs> again, you know, who am I? I'm a graduate student at this point. And uh, to my delight, they uh, messaged back. I, I don't even think it was 24 hours. They were really excited about the idea as well. And so if I hadn't hooked up with them, I'm really not sure how I would have run the study. Um, since my work with Ashley Madison, I have in fact tried to work with some other dating sites. 
I haven't had any of them return any of the contacts that I've made with them. Um, and then the other piece is, you know, how many folks are on those sites who are cheating? There may have been a lot more before the advent of Ashley Madison, but now that's kind of the gold standard, right? If you were looking to cheat, would you waste time on a traditional dating site or would you probably just go, you know, to Ashley Madison where, you know, you can find similar, you know, similar folks and uh, don't have to answer a lot of judgment or lie about who you are. So it makes sense um, to work with them. Excellent. And once they contacted you, what did you start to find in, in terms of the, the men, um, the men or why they cheat and, and what the, the purpose is? So it's really interesting. Um, so when you ask them the question, you know, what, uh, you know, what led to you deciding to join Ashley Madison and seek an affair partner, you know, their, their initial answer, not all the time, but a lot of them, their initial answer was, um, well, quite simply, you know, I'm looking for sex, right? So first I'm thinking, well, I'm probably not going to find anything useful in these interviews, but okay, we'll continue on, you know, see what we learn. But then as they start talking, um, that wasn't really the answer at all. So that was that was interesting in and of itself. The fact that like your knee jerk response to my question is one thing. But then if I just let you talk, your answer is kind of something else. Right. So that's sort of fascinating in and of itself. And what they basically ended up telling me was that. They, they love their wives, but they were in these primary partnerships where they fully believed that their wives were incredibly disappointed by them. That kept coming up over and over. I'm a huge disappointment to her. Um, she cannot be satisfied. Nothing I do is right. You know, I can't do enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, she's lost interest in me. She doesn't want to hear about my day. She doesn't want to hear about my hopes and my dreams. Um, and she's not interested in having sex with me. So there was a sexual element, absolutely, but it kept kind of coming in as almost an afterthought, which was sort of interesting. And they started talking about what they got from their outside partnerships, their affairs, if you will, which was validation and praise. They basically said they felt really emasculated by the dynamics of the primary partnerships, or at least their perception of them, because obviously I don't know what the actual dynamics are because I'm only talking to the men. So we're only getting their perspective, but their perspective was that that relationship was emasculating and that these outside partnerships really validated them as men. Now these were sexual relationships. There is actually, you know, there is an absolute, um, sexual element, <laughs> you know, to these relationships, but, Many of them came right out and said that that was, you know, low on their list of things they were getting from that relationship, that the emotional pieces that they were getting were really much more important to them. And then the uh, the secondary piece, which was uh, sexual prowess, did that help uh, reaffirm their masculinity at all? Yes. So they were very hurt by what they perceived to be their primary partner's disinterest in them as a sexual partner. They were deeply, deeply hurt by that. They talked about um, having spent a lot of time researching women's sexuality and uh, techniques and tricks and, um, you know, what they could do to better themselves as a lover and that none of that had proved to be very fruitful. They talked about how hurtful it was, um, those who had wives who 
did not uh, experience orgasm as a result of their sexual relationship with them, which was most of the sample. And, and, and then, then I saw. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, and then I saw in uh, in the book where you you wrote some of the men would go back uh, go back home and feel somewhat relieved be, mm-hmm. because of, of having that um, sexual validation from their outside partner. And yeah. not having to worry about that with their primary partner making it, making the relationship uh, better, not necessarily to support infidelity by any means, but to uh, to, to suggest that that's the findings yes. uh, is maybe more telling uh, about yeah. uh, the dynamics of outside partners. Yeah, that was kind of fascinating to me. So first off, the fact that they they so internalize, um, you know, the dynamics of those those sexual relationships with their wives um, and problematize themselves. And, you know, um, they, they would say like, my wife's never had an orgasm. And I know from research that that's not uncommon, but I still feel responsible for it. But then they go and have these outside partnerships and, um, they are with women who, you know, orgasm easily or orgasm at least with them easily. And yeah, they find that very validating and they feel like, Hey, okay. Um, I'm not less than I'm not, not manly enough, you know, I don't need to question my masculinity. And so that really like affirmed for them that they were manly enough and they were masculine enough. And that was all evidence through that sexual prowess. And they spent a lot of time talking to me about uh, their sexual prowess and their evidence was the reactions of their outside partnership. So they, so, you know, they spent all this time talking to me about how um, disappointing and uh, frustrating these primary partnerships are in terms of uh, the bedroom as well as other spaces. And then they spent a lot of time saying, but Hey, you know what? I have, I have this outside partner and she says I'm the best she's ever had. And that was very valuable to me. And that came up in every single interview that some outside partner had told them that they were the best they'd ever had. And they really wore that like, you know, kind of a badge almost for them. That was almost like a, you know, like you're at the Olympics and I've, <laughs> I'm putting the, you know, the gold medal on you or something like that. So for them, that was extremely valuable and validating to have somebody say, hey, no, you're actually really good at bed. Um, and it's really easy to dismiss this. I've had a lot of people kind of like roll their eyes. You know, they ask me what I'm working on. I tell them and I get to about this point and they kind of start rolling their eyes and acting like this isn't um, important or meaningful. But, you know, if you take a step back objectively, it would be hurtful to think that you were not um, at least adequate in bed with the person that, you know, you've sworn to love and cherish above all other people, right? I mean, that would be a hit to anybody's self-esteem, I would imagine. So from just an objective standpoint, it makes sense that this is so validating for them. You know, that if you've spent decades in a marriage where the person, the other person is approaching sex as a chore and they're not really, you know, getting anything out of what's happening and you're not able to bring them you know, sexual pleasure. They don't seem very enthusiastic. And then you have this other relationship with this person who's like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to see you. And you're so great in bed and you're the best I've ever had. Yeah. I could see where that would be (laughs) extremely meaningful and valuable to you. No. And, uh, and social norms and the institutional institutionalization of these gender norms, what place does, uh, society play in, in, in sex and, uh, emotion for making a man 
for creating masculinity? What role does society play in this? Right. So, you know, masculinity is not a static concept, right? It's, it, it's very fluid. It changes over time and place, but at present, the current conception of masculinity includes the idea that a man has sexual prowess. And he demonstrates this through amassing a lot of partners and being very good in bed. And there's lots of studies that back this up. There's tons of studies that look at women's faking of orgasms and what the motivation for that is. And women almost always report um, that a primary motivation for faking is their partner's self-esteem. So we're all aware of this on some level, whether we're conscious of it or not. Um, But there's a definite definitive link in our particular culture between a man being good in bed and a man being very masculine. And if you think about presentations and say like popular media, for example, you know, think about shows you've watched, films you watch. If a man's deemed bad in bed, he, you know, he becomes the butt of the joke, right? You know, we find him amusing and sad and um, sort of pathetic and maybe we're not conscious of it, but probably also less than a man. And the men in the study live in the same culture we do. So they're fully aware of the weight of that particular uh, facet of masculinity, if you will. And this spans more than just the family, right? And the friendship oh, yeah. group. Uh, I think that uh, a, a more masculine male might be able to perform better uh, even outside of the family in their workplace. Oh, yeah. And uh, in other areas of their life that, that span far beyond uh, family. It, it even goes into health and, and well-being, both mental oh, yeah. and physical health. Absolutely. And the men talked about that. A lot of them talked about um, one of the unexpected benefits, latent functions, if you will, of outside partnership participation was that they were performing better at work, they were more confident at work, and they carried themselves more confidently. And they believed that that translated to better outcomes at work, whether that's real or that's not, that was definitely their perception. And they were more motivated to take care of themselves, go to the gym, you know, have checkups, things like that. Um, Which again, I'm not an infidelity apologist by any stretch of the imagination, but this is what the data says. And that takes us to the, uh, to, to the next uh, question. What theoretical implications can come out of this research or what do you hope to, uh, for this research to produce uh, as others start to cite it and use similar techniques as you did for, for future study? I think there are a lot of places this could go. So, I think there is definitely the need for some kind of longitudinal study. It would be interesting to know, you know, because I interview these guys, this is a snapshot, right? This is how they felt in this moment in time as we did this interview, right? It would be fascinating to do some kind of longitudinal study to look at, you know, look at the same men in a year and five years, 10 years, Um, you know, does their perceptions of their participation and its gains, et cetera, change over time and place? Is this, you know, kind of a short term sort of thing? Of course, a lot of the men that I'd spoken to had been participating for years and decades. Um, But still, it would be interesting to see if those same snapshots stand up over time, right? Um, what's also interesting is that in the women's data, um, a big theoretical implication was, um, functional specificity, which we don't typically use, 
um, to examine infidelity or even relationships, uh, you know, intimate relationships. So basically the women said, um, you know, I don't, I don't think one person can meet all my needs, right? I think I need these multiple folks in my life. You know, I need one person for this need and one person for this need, et cetera. And the men, I didn't find anything like that at all, which was really, really fascinating. Um, but the biggest theoretical implication for them is really the idea of compensatory masculinity, which a couple researchers, I cited them in the book. I can't think of who they are off the top of my head and I apologize. It would be nice to drop their names here, but I can't, I can't think what their names are. Um, have used it in their studies as well, but there haven't been many of us. So actually a few of the reviewers said, um, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody has used this for this purpose, but actually a couple people had before me. Um, but it's still an interesting theoretical implication, I think, for other folks going forward is this idea of compensatory masculinity, the idea that the men's masculinity was threatened in those primary partnerships where they weren't satisfying their partner, either in bed or out of bed, or at least that's their perception. And then them participating in these outside partnerships as, as a way of like compensating for that um, because of feeling threatened in this other arena. And so I think that's an, that's a theoretical implication that it would be interesting to see some other folks pick up and run with as well. Did I answer your question? You did. Thank you. (laughs) And, and now we, we need to get back to, uh, your biography and, and and a reviewer saying that uh, you have in fact developed a sociology of infidelity. <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine that you've uh, that that you thought this this uh, research was going to be so groundbreaking until maybe after you conducted some literature to find out that there uh, that there wasn't much in this area. Uh, yeah. So, what are your thoughts on that as being a, a developer of a of a brand new type of sociology, a brand new area? Uh, what opportunities exist with that? Uh, wow, that's a great question. So, no, it, it never even occurred to me at all how big any of this really was, to be honest with you. I mean, I thought it was intensely fascinating and interesting. I really didn't know if anybody else would care at all <laughs> about any of this. Um, so it was incredibly flattering to be uh, given that title, if you will, to be credited with that. Um I hope that uh, that it does catch on. <laughs> I hope that we do develop a sociology of infidelity. I think it is an area that is um, really rich. I feel like there, there, there's a lot of existing research. Yes, I think there's still a lot of things that we don't know and that we haven't looked at. And it would be fascinating to be able to uh, find more answers. Um, in terms of opportunities that come along with that, I, that's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer. Um, yeah, I don't know the answer beyond bragging rights. I don't know. <laughs> a, a new a, a new subgroup within a what, an ASA group or something like oh, that. Yeah, there you or, go. Maybe I can get my uh, own ASA group. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Multiple sessions, uh, obligations, <laughs> uh, opportunities to span across the disciplines and draw from psychology and masculinity studies, gender studies, and yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was one of uh, another reviewer kind of fussed and said, uh, this person's supposed to be a sociologist, but, uh, you know, so many of their citations come from all these different disciplines. But I do really see it like, yeah, it's a sociology of infidelity, but there is an interdisciplinary factor to it. You know, you can't ignore that other data. You can't ignore that other work has been done. You have to build on all of that, you know. 
going back to maybe even Darwinism and the and the sexual drive to to uh, to continue a, a species. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, there's been some really fascinating um, work done, and it's really interesting to see where my work um, kind of buttresses what's been found and where it challenges what's been found. I, I find that very fascinating. So we are unfortunately all out of time for questions, but I, I do have one more question for us to continue uh, our conversation and, uh, and and see how we can connect in the future. What what are you currently working on? What's your next project? Um, I'm, I'm kind of juggling projects right now. Um, I'm in the midst of working on what we believe will be a series of articles about BDSM practices and I am thinking about and slowly uh, writing <laughs> my next book, um, which will look at highly sexual women. And I hope that that will be as interesting and fruitful and rich as the current book <laughs> is. So fingers crossed. So can I maybe get a sneak peek? How are you going about collecting your data for uh, for this topic on uh, on highly sexual women and, and BDSM potentially for uh, a so, project after that? Um, so both data sets are already collected. Okay. And the BDSM data set, uh, let's see, I believe we spent three years collecting that. And we used a site called BetLife, which is kind of the Ashley Madison of the BDSM world, if you will. And we uh, put out all kinds of different recruitment calls um, on campuses, on social media, et cetera. And we ended up with a pretty massive data set. Um, I think we got more than, I really want to say we got more than like a hundred participants although I don't think everybody finished the interview, so I'm not sure what the final counts are, but it's a very large data set, mostly because we kept collecting because we didn't think we had hit saturation. But then we realized that we couldn't see that we had hit saturation because there were these sort of different types within the data, if you will. And so within like folks who identify as a dom, for example, we had actually hit it. And with those who identify as a sub, for example, we had hit it. Um, but it wasn't obvious until you sorted that out. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And, uh, and that in itself can, uh, can assist in, in how you make sense of the data to identify uh, differences between dom uh, the, dom not the dominant parties and the submissive parties in the Yes. So it makes sense. Yes. Yes. Um, and then the highly sexual women, um, I did that project alone. I spent four years gathering that data. Uh, I think I have like 80 women, I want to say somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 women and, um, a similar kind of thing. I didn't think I had saturation. And then I realized I actually have three, uh, subsets of women within the group. I made like an open call. Like, do you consider yourself highly sexual woman? Which differed from the, the there's been like two, um, two sets of researchers to look into this topic before, which is kind of astounding. There's only two. Yeah. 
and uh, they defined highly sexual women for participants, but I chose not to do that. I just let people define it for themselves. And as a result of doing that, I actually have three sets of women. And so within those three sets, I have saturation, but I didn't realize it until I was very far in. So I probably could have stopped collecting earlier, but what are you going to do? And so, uh, and so those interviews are very, very rich and I, yeah, I'm hoping that there'll be interest and that it'll be as, uh, fascinating as, as the infidelity research. And of course there's some overlap because a lot of those women do participate in non-monogamy. So. Yes. And and that's what I found to be uh, most valuable about this book is how open-ended your questions are allowing for, uh, for stories to be told by the participants in your study. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I really, my goal is for folks to be able to share with me their lived experiences and then for the resulting publication to accurately represent what has been shared with me. That's really kind of how I approach it all. I, I really try not to go in with any kind of idea about what's going on and just let the data tell me what's going on. Um, which, you know, you can't hundred percent do that right because we all have ideas. Um, but I, that's always my goal is to try to, to just let them tell me what's happening rather than me think that I know what's happening. Kind of goes back to Weber in our uh, in our canon, right? To whether yep. whether value value is uh, is important or can be completely removed. And uh, I think Weber said that it's valuable as long as we can uh, uh, be honest with ourselves about any bias that we come into the situation with. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. I'm a big fan of Weber. All right. Thank you, Dr. Walker, for joining me on the show. This has been an episode of uh, New Books in Sociology, and I look forward to having you on the show again soon. All right. Thank you so much. I had fun.